I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. In a week where the Papal Nuncio to Ireland, the Holy See's ambassador to this country, visited and preached in two major Church of Ireland cathedrals in Northern Ireland, joy was expressed at the reopening of Ireland's embassy to the Holy See. One senior Vatican figure remarked that the opening would mark the end of a painful period in relations between the two states. In Pennsylvania, the Reverend Thomas Ogletree, a retired United Methodist pastor and former Yale Divinity School dean, will face a church trial on March the 10th for officiating at the wedding of his son to another man. Last month, another pastor of the same denomination was defrocked when tried on the same charge. In Australia, parents' complaints about a Christian group running religious seminars in public schools triggered a warning from the Victorian Education Department to principals about potential policy breaches. Campaigners for secular public education said it was inappropriate for Christian evangelists to make presentations to students, arguing that parents were often unaware of the nature of these activities. Well, with very definite traces of spring in the air, the Bridget of Fohard Festival prepares for what Irish tradition holds to be the first day of the season, Law Le Bride. To tell us more about the festival and the saint and goddess herself, we're joined now by teacher of spirituality Dolores Whelan. Who was Saint Bridget, Dolores? St. Bridget was the Christian embodiment of the goddess Bridget, who was a huge important part of the Irish spiritual tradition and culture right back to the time of the Tua the Danon and Newgrange. So Bridget evolved um, over those many millenniums. So she became, in a way, the most important saint after Patrick in the Irish tradition. So are you saying that the Saint Bridget, as we know her, didn't actually exist? No, I'm not saying that at all. Um, She is reputed to have been born in Fohard in County Louth, sometime around the middle of the 5th century, and that she she eventually moved from Fohard to Kildare, where she set up her monastery. It was a place of learning, it was a place of healing because Bridget as goddess and as Christian saint was associated with poetry, with healing, with learning and with hugely with compassion. She's a representative of the divine feminine within the Celtic tradition, isn't she? Yes, she is. And she holds um, a very, very important role. And um, uh, folklorist Porgine Clancy, who is a good friend of mine, spoke about um, the fact that there's an expression in Orange which is God is good and he has a great mother. And in that, Porrigan and I talked about what that might mean. And we talked about, or she and I talked about how that actually means that even God emerges from the divine feminine being, which is, if you like, the creative void out of which everything comes. Bridget is an underlying energy of femininity and it's out of the creative void of the feminine that everything, including God, emerges. This might sound very controversial, but it's um, it is the truth in that. Yeah, it is the truth. The divine feminine exists in three different forms. 
the maiden, that's Bridget at springtime, the mother, Bridget during the summer, and the kalyak, or the crone or the hag, Bridget in the wintertime. And in the wintertime, from, from November, Samhain until Imbolc, everything dies back, everything is drawn inwards. So when the spring emerges, we are seeing, if you like, the emergence of the energy of Bridget but in her new life form because at the heart of the Celtic tradition is the understanding of life, death and rebirth. Now before we come to the festival itself just one of the little prayers attributed to her she was obviously a bit of a character too in Mm -hmm. her own way I'd like to give a lake of beer to God I'd love the heavenly host to be tippling there for all eternity I'd love the men of heaven to live with me to dance and sing white cups of love I'd give them with a heart and a half sweet pictures of mercy I'd offer to every man I'd make heaven a cheerful spot. Well, to me, that is the essence of Bridget, because her life was about celebration, not sacrifice. It was about enjoying all the gifts that God has created in a rightful way, in other words, in balance. Bridget was always about balance, the spiritual and the secular, the heavenly and the earthly. And that is why she is so important. I love that poem. It is just beautiful. So no doubt she'll be celebrated during your Bridget of Fawhart Festival, which starts next Wednesday. Tell us a bit about that. Well, the festival, this is the seventh year that we have run the festival. And in the festival, we uh, endeavour to take a theme each year. And this year's theme is building bridges, challenging conventions. We begin with a circle dancing on the Wednesday. We have cross-making in our local library on Thursday and Friday. We have um, a talk by Kate Fitzpatrick called The Cosmic Light of Bridget and a talk by Karen Ward on Bridget, Manifestation of Abundance. And myself, I'm giving a talk on Bridget as uh, image of the divine feminine. We have a poetry workshop and a healing through painting workshop. And then on Saturday evening, we have um, a beautiful evening of celebration of creativity called Weaving Bridget's Magic, where we have music, song, poetry and storytelling. Okay, so where can listeners get more information about the festival? um, From www.bridgetoffoherd.ie and my telephone number is 042-93-71901. Plenty to look forward to. Plenty to look forward to. Okay, Dolores Whelan, thank you indeed for joining us on The God Slot. Okay. Last November, the Vatican publicly unveiled bone fragments purporting to belong to St. Peter, reviving the scientific debate and tantalising mystery over whether the relics found in a shoebox truly belong to the first pope. Author and photographer Paul Coudinaris spoke to Jerry McArdle about his field of expertise, the relics of saints and martyrs, and he began with the first saint associated with this type of devotion. Polycarp was in the Middle East, he wasn't in Rome, and uh, he was an octogenarian bishop, a very old man who had been martyred by the Romans for continuing to insist on the Christian faith. And while they were burning him, his followers gathered around, they believed this miraculous transformation had occurred with his flesh, that his flesh wasn't burning and it turned somehow golden. So they, they wanted to collect his blood and his body, and so that kind of that's the first known 
Christian martyr whose relics were preserved. And after that, it started to become very, very popular in the early church. You know, if you go back and read St. Augustine, he talks about the martyrs and he calls them saints. I mean, the terms saint and martyr were interchangeable at one point in time. And the, the true measure of a Christian is in willing, being willing to accept martyrdom, being willing to accept that role. And these martyrs were very, very important in the, in the Roman catacombs. There were pilgrimages to visit the tombs of martyrs and be near those bones because those bones were considered blessed. Eventually, they came up with this idea that is still, it's still practiced in the Catholic Church today, that in order to consecrate a, an altar, you need to have a relic there. You need to have some tangible piece of some holy person or some sacred good in order to consecrate a relic. And at one point in time, legally, by, by church dictates you couldn't consecrate an altar without at least two relics being present. In the relics that I studied, these counter-reformation relics, the first thing they would do when they translated a relic was to open what they called a miracle book, and that was just any reports of strange or miraculous or wonderful phenomenon that could possibly be associated with the bones. So on a popular level, miracles were necessary to affirm a relic's validity. You you mentioned the Counter-Reformation there, but let's talk yeah. about the Reformation, because the Reformation yes. comes and relics are no longer acceptable to the Reformers. Absolutely. Uh, that was one thing that all the Reformation sects had in common, is that relics were essentially worthless. They felt they were uh, a remnant of Catholic superstition that they wanted to stamp out of those regions where the Reformation was taking hold. And uh, furthermore, they the basic accusation made against relics is that they represented a form of necromancy, which theologically they don't, because theologically the relics actually have no power. All power comes from God. The relic is really just a fancy devotional aid. But as far as the laity was concerned, the relics were very attractive because they were a supernatural bridge. And so people were, the Protestants weren't exactly incorrect. The people were praying to the relics and were looking at the relics as sources of power, not God. And one of the Counter-Reformation dictates wasn't just to substantiate and uphold the relics, but bishops were told that they must instruct their parishes in the proper use of relics to make sure that this kind of what amounts to idolatry does not continue. Was there a hint too with the reformers of uh, the same thing, the same objection they had to indulgences, that people were selling indulgences? Were relics, were they kind of a money-making thing? Relics were a huge money-making thing at one point in time. Part of the, the money-making scheme with relics was finding anything that happened to look old and selling it as some holy product. And this had been gone, going on since the Middle Ages when crusaders would come back with any old piece of bone and sell it as a remnant of John the Baptist or anyone else, and some of these were proven not even to be human. You know, St. Saint, uh, Saint Rosalia down in Palermo, who is the patron saint of the city, it was later proven that her relics in the church are the bones of a goat. <laughs> and, and this was not uncommon. If you read John Calvin and Martin Luther, they talk about this. They talk about Catholics worshiping bones of horses and dogs because some of these were not real. And as you said, it was a money-making thing. This goes back to St. Augustine even. St. Augustine himself had already, back in the day, complained about relic sellers who were hawking fraudulent merchandise. So the Reformation happens, and then comes the Counter-Reformation. Yep. This is the, the Catholics kick back. Yes. And the, the theory is, if I get it right from your book, if the Protestants don't like it, then we're going to promote it. So they say, let's have relics. 
Exactly. Well, anything that was standard Catholic practice that the Protestants tried to debunk, of course, the Catholics would go overboard trying to promote because this is where difference is created, right? It's, it's in those things the Protestants disdain that the Catholics uphold that difference can be, be created between the churches. And the one thing about relics is, like them or not, you have to admit that they are attractive, especially to the laity, because they are supernatural bridges and they have this sensory, tactile quality, which is very, very attractive. And the Catholics knew that they had that quality. They wanted to promote the proper usage, but they wanted to also capitalize on the popularity of relics with the laity to draw people back into the church, to give them impressive relics, to give them these impressive tangible bridges, and to use that by showing relics of such glory that it would really announce that the church is back and the church is strong and those relics that they started shipping coming from the Roman catacombs there was an analogy involved you know the if they were martyrs from early Christian days they fought to uphold the true faith and sending rem remains of martyrs into churches in places like Germany where that battle was now going on with the Protestants it was there was an analogy being drawn you know at one point in time people gave their lives for establishing the faith and we need to do the same thing again because the Protestants are basically the new pagans. But the problem here was, wasn't it, that uh, they wanted relics, but a lot of the churches had been desecrated and relics had been removed, burned, thrown out, so there's a shortage yes. of relics. So what do right. they do? They find them in Rome. When the Roman catacombs were rediscovered, they thought it, this was a, a gift from God. You know, the catacombs were rediscovered in 1578, and suddenly they find all these skeletons that date back to early Christian times. And if they date back to early Christian times, there's every possibility that one of these may have been a martyr. And if they're an early Christian martyr, they have a status that was considered equivalent to a saint. But of course, they weren't necessarily Christian martyrs, or they weren't even necessarily Christians at all who were buried in the catacombs. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And that's part of the reason a lot of these relics that I studied went by the wayside, because they really didn't have an acceptable provenance. Um, Part of the authentication process involved looking at very circumstantial evidence. For instance, the initial M would be taken to mean martyr, but the initial M was also uh, the initial for a very popular Roman name, Marcus, the most popular name in all of Rome. So there was really more of a chance if you relied on those initials that you were sending someone named Marcus into a church rather than a martyr. S was another uh, common initial because S was thought to represent sang or blood, but S could have represented a lot of other things as well. It's just what they, if you want to find it, you'll find it. And they wanted to find evidence of martyrdom, so that's what they found. They believed that the early Christians would have tried to preserve the blood of a martyr. And there was a reason to believe that. That wasn't a fallacious belief because it was said that Polycarp, as he said, he was the first relic known to have been collected. And it was said that his followers had collected his blood. So there was a reason to believe that the early Christians would have saved the blood of a martyr. And so if they found little bits of glass or little bits of broken crockery, especially if it had a brownish or reddish residue in it, they would take that to be the blood of a martyr, and that would be absolute lock, stock, and barrel, you know, affirmation that this had been a martyr's grave. Of course, that was, these were in the days before they were doing chemical analysis, and it later turned out to be that that reddish-brown sediment that was absolute confirmation of a martyr's grave was actually a dehydrated perfume, because the Romans would put perfume on a grave, much like we would now put flowers. 
Give me your own opinion here, Paul. Do, do, do you think it's a, it's a harmful practice or does it matter if, if people get something out of it? Is it okay? I can't tell you that relics work. Um, I can't tell you that venerating a relic will really get you anything. I mean, on a, on a secular level, you could make an argument that any benefit might be psychological as much as, as theological. Uh, but yes, I think they're perfectly fine. If someone feels that it enriches their spiritual life, then by all means, they should continue venerating that relic because theologically speaking, a relic really is just a devotional aid. And if it's a devotional aid that enriches your spiritual life and it allows you to envision some kind of better way of living or, or improve your faith, then by all means, I think they should continue to be used. Paul Kudanaris was talking to Jerry McCardle. Paul's latest book is called Heavenly Bodies and it's published by Thames and Hudson. National Holocaust Memorial Day takes place next Sunday and there'll be a number of events to mark that time when man's inhumanity to man ran rampant. On RTE1 television at half past ten on Sunday night in our Would You Believe series, the children of Clonan Castle tells the story of how in May 1949 100 Jewish children who had miraculously survived the Holocaust were brought to Clonan Castle in Westmeath for a year to recuperate from the traumas of the war. The annual commemoration will take place from 6 to 8 on Sunday in the Mansion House and for our part we've a special report from Etter Mountain in Germany where Rona Tarrant visits one of the largest and most notorious concentration camps in the country, Buchenwald. Guided by the education director Daniel Gede, the report not only chronicles the crimes committed there, but documents a community struggling to accept its difficult past almost 70 years after liberation. To get to Buchenwald, you'll need to take a train to Weimar, a town in the heart of Germany. It's traditional, colourful and busy, and the camp itself is just outside the town, a short journey through a forest and up a mountain. On the bus that passes the camp, there's some people with grocery bags and some children going to school. The site seems like such a normal part of the town that it's hard to imagine that this is one of the most infamous concentration camps, second only to Auschwitz in the horrors imposed on the prisoners. It's January when we arrive, so the place is covered in a blanket of snow. Unlike the town, it's cold and quiet, with only a few visitors. I think it's good that nature can take over again even places which had been a place of murder or so. Otherwise, we would live in a huge desert here in Europe. That's Daniel, Director of Education here. This was 37 then, and Dachau was 33. And this was done on plan, um, just beside a quarry, in the middle of a forest. So somehow hidden, and on the other side or so, not far away from the city, and therefore, um, it was a clear threat to everyone, a danger. So be careful, don't speak up against the government, otherwise they will take you up the hill and you will not return. And for the Nazis, the contradiction between culture and torture didn't exist. They would say it is a necessary part of our society to have camps to make sure that we can go into the National Theatre downtown in Weimar and having no Jewish melody and no Jewish musicians and no Jewish actors on stage, it is necessary to have a camp to make that cut. And the Nazis would say if there are three grandparents, 
you're 100% Jewish. If they are less, 50%, 25%, and so on. This has nothing to do with this Jewish self-description. But this camp wasn't just for Jews. Thousands of so-called communists and criminals passed through the narrow steel gates. The text says in German, jedem das seine, each for his own, would be a fair translation. It's originally not Nazi text, it's Roman law, saying everyone shall enjoy his property, his type of living. So we do not know exactly why the commander ordered to take that text into the gate. It's not Arbeit macht frei, uh, work makes you free, like it is in Dachau or in Auschwitz. But it was clear that it would be uh, felt as a very cynical comment. Why you were born Jewish or why you are a communist, so this is what you deserve to suffer in the camp. So where are yeah. we going to now? Walking out of this former gate, which is dividing the former campsite with the area of workshops. And uh, as you see, there are lots of trees now. Yeah, it's, it's also, that area was bombed and never built up again. Okay. Every memory at this site has been carefully thought out. Some of the buildings were not replaced, and others, like the SS buildings, were torn down in the 1950s. And some say this is fitting, and other stories we don't want to tell. And so, Therefore, quite, quite big areas are empty today. One of the areas that remains is a small ruin just outside the barbed wire. This was the camp zoo, where the families of the SS kept animals. One of the survivors was asked by some students how he would feel about that, standing over here where we are inside of the camp and having a wonderful view directly out where they would take care of the animals in a very good way. And he said, of course it was a short distance and I could see it well. But I tried to focus on myself because to notice how they would take care of animals would turn me desperate. And then there's another contradiction. New Nazi laws banned medical experiments on animals, so these prisoners became the guinea pigs. So they are testing sometimes remedies uh, against epidemic diseases, which would be also spread in the German army. And, uh, well, then you have the discussion, was it, if the results are positive, can you still accept how they were found? I would say no. And these breakthroughs stretched beyond medicine to science. Werner von Braun, who was one of the main persons in the United States later to build the Apollo program and to come to the moon, well, he made his first experiences here. The stories of these camps have been told and retold, but what sets Buchenwald apart is that it didn't actually have gas chambers. The majority of people died from work, starvation, disease and executions. And they were disposed of in a small crematorium in the corner of the camp. And it was set up by a company um, located not far away from here in the city of Erfurt. And, well, the engineers could say, we didn't kill anyone, which is true. They supported this process of avoiding mass graves. For years, the city of Erfurt was rejecting plans, well, to give any hint what happened in, in Erfurt, in that company. And so, in the meantime, they realized it is worth it to think about the responsibility of engineers, of others outside of camps. And for a long time, those outside the camp looked the other way. 
And I remember well that one cab driver brought me up the hill. He did not know that I was working here and he started to tell that he would know this place pretty well because he was 10, 12 years old, living in one of the villages around here. And he said to me, he saw prisoners, he saw the SS men, he even saw corpses of killed prisoners. Wow. And he continued to talk. And then I asked him, well, if you had so much information about it as a little boy, what about your parents? And he said, they did not know anything. I told that story to another cab driver and he asked me, which type of car was he driving? And I said, oh, sorry, I forgot. <laughs> and step by step, it came out that the other driver was his father. And the son wondered why his father would talk with a stranger, but not with his own kids about that time. Probably because, again, he, we would meet only once. But to explain to his children what he saw and what the grandparents saw, would probably be very difficult to talk about. By the time of liberation on the 11th of April 1945, more than 56,000 people had died in the camp. So um, in the comment of our introductory film, in the end you see a train leaving, smiling people, flags and so, and it looks like a happy end after all. And the comment says something totally different. It says, how shall we explain to our families, to our friends, when we return, what we went through? How can they understand that uh, these camp conditions, how to describe that with words, with pictures and so on, because it's so extraordinary, not fitting to all the knowledge we have. And this has become the focus of Buchenwald, to somehow make this guilt mean something today. And I say we, which is also in relation to the present, if we buy something and we know it was done under ter terrible conditions, like clothing from Bangladesh, um, so there's still a reason to think about the past and to find out what is our responsibility today. Rona Tarrant reporting from Buchenwald. Until next Friday at the same time from the Godslot, Gugu Dijeshev.